Well, hey, uh, welcome back, Gospel Hope. As you know, we are in our series entitled, It's Complicated. And this week is no exception. As we survey David's relationships, um, they continue to increase in their uh, dynamism and complexity. And this week is absolutely no exception. Uh, as we take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're now focusing in on probably one of the second most popular stories of all David's life. The first being David and Goliath, and now the second being, as I would think it uh, to be, David and Bathsheba. And so uh, for those who may not know the story, I'll tell it at a really high level as it takes up uh, all of chapter 11. And then we'll kind of unpack that story to see exactly what we can learn. I'll read a few verses to start us off. It says, um, begin with verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, uh, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she was in the time of purifying herself uh, from her uncleanliness. And then David returned, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. For those of you who don't know what happened for the next several verses, is after David discovers that Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, is now pregnant with his child, he immediately goes into a mode of trying to figure out how to manage this particular sin. As he goes into this mode, he calls Joab, one of his, the, the captain of his armies, and has him to bring Uriah to him. And when he brings Uriah to him, he attempts to convince Uriah to go down to his home and to spend the night with his wife so that in having sex with his own wife, uh, when she reveals that she's pregnant, that it would be publicly perceived as Uriah's baby, when in, in fact, David would be the father. Immediately following this, as you may know the story, Uriah refuses to do so. And as a result, then David amps up the plan and decides that what he'll do is actually tell Joab to send Uriah to the hottest part of the battle, to have Uriah to go and serve on the very, very, very front lines, and to have the men to pull back from Uriah so that in the course of the heated battle, he is actually killed. Well, this conspiracy to commit murder actually works, if you will. Uriah is then killed. Uriah, uh, is death is mourned by his wife Bathsheba, or his, now his widow. David takes Bathsheba now to be his wife, and they give birth to this son. And in the Bible, uh, the story closes with these words in verse 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah had died, uh, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What do we stand to learn today? Adultery is wrong? Big surprise. That conspiracy to commit murder to try to cover up the adultery is wrong? Well, you already know that. Big surprise. What exactly can we learn from this story? Well, like you, as you read this, I too felt a great deal of tension. 
And that is, how can a man that in all of these previous chapters and previous weeks, who has been branded as a man after God's own heart, do something so heinous? How can a man who has a, a heart uh, uh, after God's own heart fall so hard and so completely on his face? It seems like it, it doesn't really seem that complicated. Adultery is wrong. Commitment to conspiracy is wrong. This murder, or whatever you want to call it, is wrong. All the things are just wrong, and it displeased the Lord. Is the message over? Is that all we were set to learn? These obvious precepts that murder and adultery are wrong? No, I think there's a little bit more. Today, I want us to explore and learn from David's fall and David's folly. I want us to learn something. We're going to, at the highest level, take a look at the strategy of Satan alongside the anatomy of temptation. The strategy of Satan alongside the anatomy of temptation. There's something that we can all learn because if David was a man after God's own heart and he fell this hard, then I know that I'm capable of falling like this too. When we read these great stories, sometimes it makes our blood boil. Sometimes it makes our, our, our toes ball up in our shoes. Or sometimes it makes the hair stand up on the back of our neck. And sometimes we can immediately find other people who really need to read this story because how dare they do something like this. But I also want us to not only look at this word as a window through which we might see the sins of others, but I want us to also look at it as a mirror so that we can also see some of the sins and some of the same symptoms of this similar kind of fall in our own lives. As we look at this anatomy of temptation alongside the strategy of Satan, there are certain things that I also want us to pay attention to. And, 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 and here's one of them is that the complication here, or the, the complicated landscape is this. It's between David and his relationship with his own flesh. That's what's complicated. It's one of the most complicated relationships that we're going to look at in this entire series, is David and his own flesh. But also, it's going to be complicated for us to learn something about our flesh. Because if David could fall like this, then so can we. And so we want to learn from him today. And we'll learn under this particular premise and title is that we must maintain a healthy distrust of our own flesh. We must maintain a healthy distrust of our own flesh. I want you to just kind of simmer in that for a moment, and we're going to pray, and we're going to come right back and unpack today's message as to what it means to have a healthy distrust for our own flesh and how this will help us navigate Satan and his strategy and also the anatomy of temptation. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning, thanking you and praising you for your great grace and your wonder. We thank you, Lord God, for having preserved this story for us, having not swept it under the rug of history, but allowing us to see the great vulnerability of a man who you branded as being after your own heart. Help us to learn from his ways that they would not become any of our ways, that we would be a people that will walk upright before you and walk worthy of the call that you've placed on us as Christians or as children of God. So, Lord God, we need you in this time to hear with fresh ears and to also apply what we hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you got your Bibles out, 2 Samuel chapter 11, once again, we're looking at David and the complicated relationship between himself and his own flesh. There's something that I want you to pay particular attention to as we discover why we need to maintain a healthy distrust of our own flesh. Look at the first two verses here in chapter 11. It says, in the spring of the year, 
the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But in contrast, what was David doing? David remained at Jerusalem. And exactly where was David? According to the scriptures in verse 2, David was on his couch. And he rose from that couch, and that's when he caught a glimpse of Bathsheba. Now, what's interesting about this couch is it's literally David's bed. It's a place where he sleeps, a place where he rests, if you look at the underlying language. The first thing that we learn about David as a part of his fall and the great mistake that he made is that when David, is that David was in bed when he should have been in battle. Say that with me. David was in bed when he should have been in battle. I want you to take note of what the scriptures teach in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Ladies and gentlemen, whether you are in your bed or whether you are physically out in battle, you are always at battle. The question is, are you fighting the right battle? You see, David, in thinking that he was at home on his bed or on his couch, he thought he was out of the battle, but in reality, he was involved in another battle, the invisible battle as defined for us by Ephesians chapter 6, and he miserably failed to live up and stand up as a great warrior. We're always in battle. David was in bed when he should have been in battle. And I want us to take note of this, that there are times in our lives where we need to maintain a healthy distrust of our flesh because our flesh, or we may let our guard down thinking that there's no battle that, uh, uh, underway because our surroundings are peaceable because there's nothing going on around that creates anxiety and tension. And I don't believe that the Lord is calling us to be an anxious people, to always be around looking for you know, a ghost behind every tree or a demon under every rock or angel wherever they find them. That's not the, that's not the essence of Ephesians chapter six. But we are called to recognize that the real war, the most intense battle that we as believers are fighting, regardless of what we see before our very faces, is a spiritual battle in which Satan has deployed certain schemes to do what? According to Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, the devil's schemes are all designed to steal, kill, and to destroy. There is always a target on the believer's back, and we need to be aware of that. I believe it was also 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, who tells us these words, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls prowls around like a roaring lion, seeing or looking for someone that he might devour. Resist him. Firm your faith, knowing that, uh, that the kinds of sufferings are to be experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the scriptures describe for us that Satan is always lurking back and forth, looking for whom he might devour. He's never resting, even though we are. And that also, there's always a battle, even if we don't see it. There's always a battle underway. And so David's first mistake and our first mistake in many seasons of temptation is that while David was in bed, he should have been at battle. We should always be on guard, spiritually warring, making it a part of our daily life plan to be in battle, in the spirit realm, if not physically fighting whatever is going on before our very faces. 
in the first verse, we learn this, that, that David's kind of being in the bed when he should have been at battle is marked by several missed opportunities. And we will have also these missed opportunities in our lives if you look at seasons of sin or series of sin. So a season of sin, I'm talking about a long-standing period in your life where you struggle with something or a series of sin. Maybe something you don't struggle with it for extended seasons, but it always has this reoccurring reintroduction into your life. There are seasons of sin that we can live in sometimes, and other times there are series, reoccurring themes where, where Satan is looking to exploit our weaknesses. And there are things that we do to set ourselves up for failure in this time by not maintaining a healthy distrust of our flesh. Well, here's one of the ways that we can shore up what's happening in our lives despite the weakness of our flesh. Look at what the Bible says about David in chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. So there is a distinct time, place, and rhythm followed by the kings, and David wasn't participating. One of the first things that we need to do if we're going to be at battle rather than being in bed is this, we need to maintain righteous rhythms that keep us engaged and keep us in community. I'll say that again. You wanna fight temptation well? Maintain righteous rhythms, regular righteous rhythms that keep us both engaged so that we are not idle and that also keep us in community. Why do I say that? The Bible was very explicit in these first two verses to let us know that Joab and others were out on the battlefield, people whom David should have been with. Uh, so the Lord calls us to do life in community, to even do battle in community. This was very helpful in some of the other conversations that we've been having about uh, Better Together or, or in our Better Together series. But I want you to stay with me. We need to maintain righteous rhythms. There should be a series of rhythms that we build into our lives that are righteous and that also uh, align us with others who have the same objectives. Maybe it's praying with others. Maybe it's reading with others. Maybe it's studying with others. Maybe it's evangelizing with others. Uh, maybe it's, it's regular fellowship with others. But we need righteous rhythms with others where we stay engaged in doing things that are right with our hands and not idle, and that we are also keeping community with others who are like-minded. We need these rhythms in our lives. There's nothing wrong with rest, but what happens is when rest is inserted in a place where we should be engaged in a righteous rhythm, we put ourselves at risk for temptation. Everybody sleeps. There's nothing wrong with sleep. Again, there's nothing wrong with recreation. But notice that the scriptures describe for us a specific scenario that it is not David's sleeping that's the problem. It's when he was resting. And that was at a time when kings go out to battle. David was in bed when he should have been in battle. And this can also be a, a part of our life rhythm if we're not careful. So we need to maintain righteous rhythms that keep us both engaged and in community. But there's something else that the scriptures make us aware of. And that is, we need to be aware of how our comforts can lead to compromise. The Bible says that it was late in one afternoon. This is verse 2. Late in one of the afternoons, when David gets up off of his bed or off of his couch, he goes to walk around on the roof, and there it was. Bathsheba is bathing, and he can see her from the roof. Now, this is not the first time that David has seen a woman in the nude, and this ain't the first time that Bathsheba has taken a bath. Uh, but for some reason or another, these two opportunities have met one another in a moment of unique compromise. You need to know that when you are tempted, when you and I are tempted by sin, 
These are strategic opportunities where Satan lays something that is normal and natural in our path, but then tries to make it something wicked and damaging to our faith. This is why sometimes temptation can catch us off guard because it is, it is camouflaged as being normal everyday life. Again, Bathsheba bathes all the time. David probably walks on the roof all the time. But here's this sinful opportunity because David is in a place of comfort when he should be in battle. And our comforts, legitimate comfort, can sometimes set us up for compromise. Uh, reflect and remember what James told us about the anatomy of temptation here in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Pay special attention. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so tempting opportunities are the result of something within us that desires the thing that we see or that desires the thing that we're about to do. This is not God's fault. It is a part of the fall and the fallen nature within us. There was something particular about Bathsheba and something particular about what was happening in David's life that produced a moment of compromise. So we need to maintain righteous rhythms that keep us both engaged and keep us in community with others. That would have been one of the first areas that David uh, uh, failed here. The second area is his comfort led to compromise. It opened him up to see something that was obviously a part of his weakness and something that he was drawn to because it says when he saw Bathsheba, she was beautiful. Again, there may have been others who have seen her and had not thought so. Um, he, would, he may not have been the only person in town who saw her bathing, but, but they looked at it and it didn't draw them. We need to be honest about our, the nature of our sin and know the things that really register deeply with us and can move us to an unredeemed place. Which brings me to my third idea, and that is this. We need to be discerning of our desires. We need to be discerning of our desires. The Bible would say in another place, we need to guard our heart. In other words, there are certain things that are tempting to Roderick Dewberry that are not tempted to you. And you and I may not be able to go into the same environments and remain unscathed. There are certain things that are tempting to you that are never tempting to me. But we both, as responsible believers, need to be discerning of our desires so that our comforts and the way that we move and walk in life don't put us in positions of compromise because we live aloof and we're not guarding our hearts. I would call it this way. Not only do we need to guard our hearts, but we need to know what our Vegas is. Yeah, Vegas, like the place on the other coast over there. Everybody has a Vegas. I've been to Vegas. I've been a couple of times by myself, and then I went another time with my family. In both moments, I, I feel good about how I came out. There was nothing that I did that I'm ashamed to tell anybody back here on this coast. But everybody has a Vegas. You know Vegas has become iconic with the place of what? Low accountability, high access to my vulnerabilities, and very little responsibility. That's your Vegas. Your Vegas doesn't have to be in Nevada. Your Vegas doesn't have to be at some distant place across the country on another coast. Our Vegas is any environment that meets that criteria. Great distance from accountability, low responsibility, and high exposure to my vulnerabilities. Whatever those things are, that's your Vegas. We need to be, this, be astute and discerningly aware of what the unique matrix of my weaknesses are, and that is your Vegas. Once again, your Vegas is a place in life where you have the, the lowest accountability, the least responsibility, and the highest amount of vulnerability. For some of you, your Vegas 
is in your home office when your wife leaves to go get groceries and you know that that's gonna take about two hours and you're there in front of the computer. For others of you, your Vegas is a stack of romance novels that you have next to the nightstand and as you read through them, you are all of a sudden doing something in your mind that should only be done with or by your husband. And you, but you safeguard yourself from thinking that that's wicked because it's not as gritty as being on the internet. You know where I'm going, right? We all, both male and female, have a Vegas. There's a unique metrics of weakness. Again, high exposure to your vulnerabilities, low accountability and low responsibility, that's your Vegas. We must be highly discerning of what those things are because there's always a Bathsheba that's bathing in the nude for every single one of us and it is gonna represent a unique attraction for us that'll pull us away from God and toward the desires of our flesh. Know your Vegas. So David was in his bed when he should have been in battle. Here's, here's, here's the, how I want to close this, this one idea. When we're not where we're supposed to be, we are destined to see what we're not supposed to see. I want you to remember that. If David had been in battle, there's no way he would have seen Bathsheba. If David had been in battle, if he had seen Bathsheba, he would have been in war alongside Uriah, her husband. There would have been automatic accountability. There is an inherent accountability that lives within community with the right people. When we're not where we're supposed to be, we are destined to see what we're not supposed to see. If David had been on the battlefield, he would not have seen what he's seen that lured him away. He can't blame society. He can't blame family. He can't blame anybody other than him. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. So let's take a look at another set of verses. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. Now, this is an interesting conversation. Look at the anatomy of temptation once again. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So he's seen this beautiful woman uh, bathing. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is it not, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is a rhetorical question. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah? Okay, so it's a rhetorical question that is being posed to him. And so David sent messengers and he took her. So he sent them and he says, not only, not, not only sent some people to say, hey, it's your king. I wanted to holler at you for a minute. I saw you bathing today and I'm uh, just wondering, you know, what you're doing? You know, ladies, no, he sent messengers to her and then he took her and brought her to the house and he slept with her. Right. She's uniquely vulnerable in this position as well. He's the king. She's a woman. What's going to happen? Is she going to say no? Certain that she could have, but David must know the size, his psychological size, and, and the position that he holds in culture would have uh, tipped this sinful situation definitely in his direction. And then when you think about the whole era of concubines, I mean, I guess who wouldn't want to sleep with the king, so to speak? So there's all of this just very twisted and mangled uh, uh, ideals of the flesh that make this such a ripe and opportune moment for the flesh, and it all seems normal and natural, doesn't it? It looks like the natural cultural rhythms. And we can't be deceived by the fact that because something has become a natural cultural rhythm, that it is not also a carnal rhythm that God does not approve of. We so often can confuse what is natural with what is approved by the supernatural, and the two are not the same. In this next major heading here, I want, to, I want us to feel this. Not only was David in bed, when he should have been in battle, but David was in pursuit when he should have been in retreat. What do I mean by in pursuit? When he saw Bathsheba bathing naked, 
He then started to inquire about her as opposed to retreating to say, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to do this great evil. I need to, <laughs> I need to close my eyes. I need to go downstairs. I need to polish my sword. I need to, you know, uh, make sure my armor is right. I need to work on my slingshot skills just in case there's a new Goliath. Like, like there were so many things that David should have and could have been doing. The first of which was to be in battle. But even in this moment, rather than retreating, he is pursuing Bathsheba. He sees this sinful opportunity and the scriptures make it clear that he is pursuing sin or pursuing or, 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 or acquiescing to temptation because the person who answers the question of who is Bathsheba answers it in a rhetorical way. Is this not Bathsheba? Question mark. Is this not Eliam's daughter? That name being mentioned because David would have obviously known who that man was. And is this not also Uriah's wife? Certainly, if Uriah plays a significant role in the armies of David, and David being a warrior himself, he would have known who Uriah was, and he likely knew who Eliam was as well. And so, so, so sometimes the flesh can ask dumb questions, uh, you know, play games of ignorance with us to, to make us feel as if we, we don't know exactly fully what we're doing. But, but the Bible reminds us of how to handle moments like this. Moments where we see lustful things, where we see images that, that may not draw us in a direction that is toward the Lord, but toward our flesh. And what does the Bible have to say about it? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. So flee youthful passions. Some of your Bibles say lust. So flee youthful passions and, not or, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who, who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Look at this verse carefully, real carefully. In response to lust, we are supposed to flee youthful lust or passion and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and to do it along with, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We are not designed to fight sin alone. And also the great fight from sin involves three distinct prongs that I want you to see here. Number one, when I find myself in temptation, we're still at the point of temptation for David. When we find ourselves in temptation, here needs to be the mode of retreat. I need to, number one, flee. But not just avoid sin. The Bible says to flee the lustful situation, but then to also produce the fruit of the Spirit. Notice it says flee youthful passions, but then pursue righteousness, faith, love. I need to take the same energy with which I'm tempted and immediately begin to till and cultivate in my character the fruit of the spirit. That's what I'm supposed to do with the same temptation energy is to retreat from that and pursue the production of the fruit of the spirit. I need to do that and. So avoid and begin to that agricultural work of producing the fruit of the spirit. But then the Bible goes further and says, and I need to do it in community with others who also call on the name of the Lord. So I need to flee from sin. I need to produce some fruit. Uh, as we see it spelled out in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, it tells us that the fruit of the spirit are in direct competition with the works of the flesh. And if you're doing one, you can't do the other. And so the Bible takes advantage of this dynamic where you can't simultaneously produce to the fruit, I mean, to the, to the flesh and to the spirit. It says, run to the work of the spirit so that the flesh is quieted. But then it also tells us that I need to flee, I need to produce fruit, but I also need to find some cover. In other words, I need to run to the Lord. I should be seeking fellowship with the Father when I feel temptation coming on. 
pursue fellowship. So, so, so a successful strategy to fight temptation isn't just avoiding the temptation, but it's also, again, cultivating fruit, finding cover and safe haven in God's fellowship, but also finding community along with others who call upon the name of the Lord. This is how we fight sin. We live in a very individualistic society where both my successes are considered to be my own and even my failures are considered to be my own. And therefore, when it comes to these tough moments of temptation, we often try to fight them on our own. And the Bible says that that is not a winning formula. I need to not only run from the sin, but I need to produce fruit and I need to find fellowship with the Lord and find fellowship with others who also trust the Lord. James chapter four, verses seven and eight says something will happen. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil. And what will he do? He will flee from you. So if I will resist Satan and run to God, then it says that Satan will flee from me. And if I draw near to God, according to James 4, 7 and 8, if I draw near to God, then he will also draw near to us. Cleanse your hands, O sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the Bible recognizes that sometimes we want to straddle the fence, but it says if you will draw near to God and flee from Satan, Satan will flee and God will draw close. This why this is why temptation avoidance alone is not a successful strategy for fighting sin. And so in our walk with the Lord, I want us to know this. I want us to be reminded of this. In our walk, we are always on the move. We are either moving toward the Lord or we are moving away from him. We are always on the move, either toward him or away from him. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 <coughs> has something powerful to say to us. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. The Lord wants us in clutch moments, in all moments, not just for the tender fellowship when I'm sipping my cup of coffee in the morning, not just during church services when my hands are up and my eyes are closed and I'm, I'm bathing in the Lord's presence, but in clutch moments, I need to run to the Lord. It says that his name is a strong tower and the righteous run in it and they are safe. That is the language of, of, of safety. The Lord provides refuge because there must be something outside of his name that is providing risk. So this isn't just a run to the church. This is run to the Lord. You see this? We need the safe covering of the Lord in times of temptation. David was in bed when he should have been in battle. David was in pursuit when he should have been in retreat. But take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 6 through 13. There's something else going on. So after it is revealed, or after Bathsheba sends word back to David, that she has now conceived the child. They have conceived the child following the adulterous, uh, um, uh, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, rendezvous. Um, look at what happens in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked, Oh, how, um, how, ask how Joab is going. He's small talking. He wants to know how Joab is doing. He wants to know how the battle is going, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so then David said, well, Uriah in verse eight, uh, why don't you, why don't you go down to your house, you know, wash your feet. Why don't you chill, get you something to drink or whatever, relax, you know, come back from battle. You're on your little reprieve. And then Uriah went out of the king's house and therefore, um, uh, he, and, and also David sent a present. Uh, with him. Now, this is highly, this is high. the battle is not over. Why would a king send a gift? 
Uriah knows that something, Uriah smells a rat, and here's how we know how. He sends his present, and in verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when David and when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not gone? Uh, have you not come from a journey? Why have you not gone down to your house? And Uriah said to David, this is so powerful. Listen to this in verse 11. Uriah says to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwells in booths or in tents. And my Lord Joab, that's the captain of the armies, right? And the servants of my Lord are camped in open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? Question, rhetorical question. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank so that uh, he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out uh, to lie on his couch with the other servants and his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So then David, once he couldn't trick Uriah into going down to lay with his wife, because if Uriah had gone in and had sex with his wife, then the baby that has been produced by their adultery, they could have said, ah, you know, that's Uriah's baby. I guess, you know, you could have, you know, set that up, or at least Uriah would have believed it, even though no one else in town would have believed it because they've just known what's going on. But then the other thing is, he gets Uriah drunk to try to loosen his judgment uh, in, in order to get him to go down there. Does this sound familiar? Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Why? Because when I lower my, uh, when my convictions are lower, when my senses are lower, I'm less likely to follow the Lord. This is what the scriptures are, are, are saying to us about this. Or at least this is what David tries to exploit that reality. But I want you to, I want you to hear something else. David was in repair mode when he should have been in repentance mode. David is actively in repair mode when he should be in repentance mode. What do we mean by repair mode? But the beautiful thing, though, is while David is doing all of this work to repair his sin, to, to kind of repair some of the collateral damage, right? This isn't repentance. This is repair. Know the difference. Trying to cover sinful tracks is not repentance. This is repair mode, right? Get, they, get Uriah to sleep with his wife. We can, you know, know. Uh, okay, so then the next thing he does is he says, send Uriah to the front and the most heated part of the battle. Let's just get Uriah dead altogether. Then I can have his wife. And then when I sleep with her, she'll have a baby. And everybody will think, okay, the baby is mine, which it is. But they won't know the timing of the conception. You see this? He is in repair mode, but he should be in repentance mode. But the Lord is so faithful. The Lord is so faithful even when we are falling. This is what's so awesome about this story. I want you to look at the fingerprints of the sovereign God and how he is faithful even when we're being foolish and unfaithful. Now, in verse 3, notice that when uh, uh, David inquired as to who Bathsheba was, remember what one of the servants said? Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah? The Lord in that moment is making the sinful contemplations obvious. Why does God do that? God will make our sin obvious so that we'll know uh, that, that when we sin, we are aware of his presence. God wants us to be fully aware, not only of his presence in times of insecurity and doubt and anxiety where we need comfort, but the Lord also wants us to be deeply aware of his presence even when we operate in foolishness. And this is why this man is able to say to him, isn't this such and such his wife? Isn't this this guy's daughter? 
Yeah, yeah, you know exactly who this is. The Lord will make our sin obvious to others to raise our awareness of his own presence, that he is working providentially to, to get us out of this situation or to move us out of this situation. In verse 5, the scriptures tell us that um, it is revealed that she is pregnant. Again, of all the moments perhaps David could have done what he did, um, um, this, in this particular moment, uh, Bathsheba conceives a child. And a child is impossible to hide. David may have, been, may have possibly been able to hide this sin had she not conceived the child. But we know that life comes from the Lord. And check this out. The Lord will make our sin obvious to draw us out of darkness. This is a dark thing that David has done. And so the Lord makes our sin obvious so we can become aware of his presence and his, raise our awareness of his presence. But the Lord will also uh, uh, cause our sin to give birth to something that we didn't anticipate to draw us out of darkness, to bring us to a place of exposure, not for embarrassment, but for conviction, for conformity, for sanctification and righteousness. But then there's something else that Uriah does that I love. Uriah does this in verse 11. He says, the ark is in a tent. The people of Israel are out in the battlefield. I am not going to go down and enjoy comfort. He says, look, the reason that Uriah is saying these words is based on verse one of this chapter. Uriah is essentially saying to David, when he tells David to, when, when Uriah tells David to go down to his house to sleep with his wife, what Uriah is saying to David is, the ark is where it's supposed to be. The, the, the people of Israel and Judah are where they're supposed to be. Joab and the soldiers are where they're supposed to be. Hey man, where you at? You're not where you're supposed to be. I'm where I'm supposed to be as Uriah the Hittite. I'm supposed to be in battle. Where are you? And this is one of the great beauties of the ministry of Uriah that's going to become so paramount to the story in just a moment. But look at how the Lord is working through all these. The Lord makes our sin obvious to raise our awareness of his presence. The Lord makes our sin obvious to draw us out of darkness. The Lord will make our sin obvious to make us see its ugliness. This is so paramount. This trifecta of influences from the sovereignty of God, the awareness of God's presence, the ugliness of our sin and the darkness of our sin, when those are on deck, this is when we are ripe for repentance. Prior to seeing the true ugliness and the darkness of what we're doing in light of God's presence, we will not repent. We will always stay in repair mode. We'll constantly work to cover up what we've done. We'll constantly try to apologize and say we're sorry and hopefully it never happens again. But real turning from our sin must involve seeing our sin the way God does. Ugliness, darkness that was done in the Lord's presence. And this is exactly what God has providentially done in the life of David. And this is the only time that we can be truly convinced. When we're convinced of the essence of sin, then we'll move in real repentance. Anytime prior to that, it's just kind of a cover-up job. We're in repair mode rather than repentance mode. There's one final swing in the text that I want to share with you before we close and before I leave you alone. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 22 through 27. After David successfully sends Uriah back to battle, or Uriah goes back to battle because he's a valiant man, um, obviously the battle rages as David um, uh, suspects, and Uriah is killed. Once Uriah is killed, the messengers come back and convey to David what has happened. Everybody puts on their false uh, mourning, or David does, and then, of course, Bathsheba mourns. And then, of course, he has an open line to go ahead and take her as his wife. And the scriptures tell us that this thing displeases the Lord. But I want, to, 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 I want you to see what's happened here. David was fully invested in covering his, saying, covering his shame 
rather than coming to grips with his sin. David was fully invested in doing everything he had to possibly do, everything, all the resources, all the strings he could pull. David was fully invested in covering his shame rather than coming to terms with his sin. And in this, I believe that the star of the story is actually Uriah. You might not think so, but I want you to follow real quickly what Uriah does. When Uriah first comes back from war, it is his presence that reminds David of where he is supposed to be. When he says, the ark, Israel, Judah, and Joab, the soldiers, they're all on the battlefield. I am not going to stay here getting my feet washed or going to see my wife. I'm going to battle. The very presence of Uriah reminds David, who is also a warrior, also a man who we know uh, enjoys standing up for and defending the name of the Lord. The presence of Uriah reminds David of where he is supposed to be. This is the same thing that the Lord Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would do for us. When the Holy Spirit has come, he will remind you of all things that I taught. David knew what was right, but he often needs to be reminded. We know what, in many cases, what is right and what the Bible says, but we need to be reminded. Uriah reminds David of where he is supposed to be. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uriah's presence is also a reflection of how David is supposed to act. Not only where he's supposed to be, but how he's supposed to act. Look at Uriah's resistance to, on two different occasions to go down to his house. He laid outside the king's door and resisted both appeals to go down and to do or, or to give this room for David to cover up his sin. The Holy Spirit does the same thing in our lives, ladies and gentlemen. He refused to leave. He will not abandon us. He will not come. He, he may get quieter, so to speak, at some times, but he will not abandon. He reminds us, is what Jesus says, uh, of, of, of the things that we should have been taught. But he also gives us a reflection of what we should be. This is the active work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the New Testament believer, reminding us of what the life of Christ looks like living through us. But then also Uriah, very tragically, in his perishing, he reflects or echoes or even reverberates what we try to do to the Holy Spirit. That is, Uriah goes out on the front lines, this person whose presence and witness reminds David of his iniquity and his shortfall, right? Uriah's very presence does that. And David says, you know what? As a ditch effort, I'll send him to the front line and I'll have him killed so that both his witness and his voice won't continue to remind me of this thing that I've done. It won't expose me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, the, this is very, very, very um, reminiscent of what the scriptures tell us in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. It says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but in everything hold fast what is good. We're told to not quench the spirit. Does that sound weird to you? Quench. It almost like, it, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is like a, a fire. And we're not supposed to quench it. We're not supposed to put out this burning flame that is constantly reminding and raging within us of what is right. We're not supposed to quench the spirit. That is the, that is the, 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 the foremost call of the scriptures on the life of the modern Christian is that we are not to quench the Holy Spirit. But we see David fully trying to do that. I want to give you a little moment to do a little research here. If you're at home and you're close by your Bible or your laptop or you have a Bible study program, I want you to go look up what the name of Uriah means in Hebrew. I want you to look up the name of Uriah, all right? All right, uh, I don't know, Rick, you can put the baby down, give it to Sarah, run, get your Bible, whoever else. Aaron, you've been at home for a minute, you can go find your Bible. Somebody, uh, type and put it in the notes, what the name Uriah means. 
Just in case, Abby, I know you like to study the Bible. Uh, go, go look at it. What does Uriah's name mean in Hebrew? It means the fire of Yah. It's the fire of Yah, the fire of God. That is exactly what Uriah's name means. And so here it is, David wants to quench the fire of Yahweh. He wants to control and snuff out any witness of the wickedness that he has done. And this is not what we're supposed to do. Uriah in this moment is a typification or at least a prefigure and an echo of the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit. Constantly lurking around in many different ways, reminding us, reflecting for us, uh, uh, pulling on us, uh, jarring us. I mean, think about Uriah's boldness to stand before the king and says, I'm not doing what you tell me to do. I won't do it. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Holy Spirit doesn't obey us. He's always standing boldly within us, reminding us of where we have walked away from the Lord. And that's exactly what Uriah does. And I, and I hope that today we do not diminish the unique, glorious, and wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says that when we, when, when we, when we develop a lifestyle of constantly uh, moving against the Spirit, you know, we, our conscience can become callous. We don't, wanna, we don't want to diminish our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We want our senses trained to discern good and evil by constantly doing what is right, not trying to diminish the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so when we look today at the anatomy of temptation and the strategy of Satan, when we're supposed to be at battle, if we find ourselves in bed, we open ourselves up. When we're supposed to be fleeing and retreating, make sure we're not pursuing. When we're supposed to be in repentance mode, let's make sure we're not in repair mode. When we should be coming to grips with the terms of our sin, let us not invest all of our energy in trying to cover up our shame. Let us be careful to clearly hear the Holy Spirit when he stands up in our lives and makes it obvious that there's something that we're flirting with that is sinful. Let us not ignore all of the providential signs of God to show us how ugly sin is, and how, and how dark sin is and what we're doing actually in the presence of the Lord. Let us maintain a high awareness of God's presence so that our sin cannot find safe haven in any place in our character. Our foremost weapon in fighting sin is to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to flee from sin, to go and produce fruit, find safe haven in the presence and fellowship of God, and also in the company of other believers who also call on his name. It's a tough lesson, but we have a chance to learn from a man who is after God's own heart, but he fell hard, and we can now learn from his fall. Temptation is complicated, but uh, we don't have to lose a battle because we have a sure witness in God's word on how to win. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, maintain a healthy distrust of your flesh. Know your Vegas, but listen to the Spirit. This is our prayer for you. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you, uh, thanking you and praising you for the lessons from your word, and ask that we would be a people who constantly yield to the ministry and the voice of the Holy Spirit uh, in our great fight from sin, that we would not assume that we are exempt from this great folly, but that we would know that Satan is roaming, looking for whom he might devour. But you are more faithful than Satan could ever, could ever be persistent in not leaving us by ourselves, but fully armed to fight sin in the right way. Uh, help us, O oh God, to be quick that when we identify sin, to run to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 
Gospel family, uh, it has been fun, and we look forward to continuing our series with you uh, on It's Complicated. But one of the most complicated relationships is the one between us and our own flesh.